0: This is the EFCA Theology Podcast, which exists to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. This year, our EFCA Theology Conference challenged us to think deeply about the doctrine of the church. On this episode of the podcast, we share a conference message from Dr. Greg Waybright called, The Church, a Missional Community. Dr. Waybright is the pastor of Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, California, and the former president of Trinity International University. I've been asked to do this topic, the church, a missional community. Uh, missional is a word I don't use very often. I'm right across the street from Fuller Seminary. That that term, missional, takes on a lot of baggage, I, I will simply tell you. So I've got to tell you what I mean by it. I, I simply mean uh, God's mission. I, I'm so simple. I grew up in West Virginia. So I just think about things in simplistic terms. I try to cover up the hillbilly nature, you know, by all the education and stuff. But I just think so simply about these things. I I think um, when people ask me, "Uh, Pastor, what is your mission for the church? I said, it's not my church. And so it's not my mission. Uh, Our Father has really told us what his mission is. His mission is he's going to take everything in this world that he has made. And when he is done, it is going to reflect his glory. Right now we look at what our Father has made, it doesn't reflect all that he is. But someday when he is done, all that is, all that he has made, will reflect his beauty, his perfections. And he is in that work uh, that, that the Bible ends with in Revelation 21 and 22 of making everything right. I want to take up, and I think the church, the local church planted in neighborhoods, is the central vehicle that God uses to bring about that work. When I was doing my doctoral work, writing my dissertation in Cambridge, I saw that I was reading through Ephesians and Colossians, and that just grabbed hold of my heart and um, gave me this longing to be at the, at the very front or in the center of where God is doing that work within a local church. And actually, all 12 years, I was at Trinity, kind of, Father, when do I get to go back to be at the important place, uh, to actually being there at, at, at the front lines of the work? Um, so I, as, as I look at it, I see what our Father is doing, and, and wherever I am, both as an individual or, or within a, a university uh, or within a local church, I want to take up uh, my role or our role in what our Father is doing in this world. So that's what I want us uh, to think about today. Um, I'm going to use an illustration that I used, and I I had slides here. I don't know why they didn't come up. must be some evil or sin that kept it from happening, so you have to use your imagination. I want to use an illustration for you because I talk about this mission at our church almost ad nauseum. So I use the illustration that I've used a lot as I talked about this matter of God entering into this world Uh, and planting churches right into this world, his family right into this world to make a difference uh, in this world. My son, who is an artist, said that sounds a lot like a pretty significant movement in in the world of art globally. It's been going on probably three, maybe four decades. It's called the Reclamation Art Movement. It started out of uh, uh, Germany, but uh, there's a lot of it that happens here in the United States. The city of Detroit as a number of artists that go and put beautiful spaces in some of the places that have become ugly. Uh, and so reclamation art has become uh, an image for me that it might be helpful for you as well. Uh, I had a great picture of this, so you have to just try to imagine it. The, the particular area of reclamation art that I think about is has happened in the Nine Mile Run uh, district in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the Nine Mile Run area is a stream valley that once was absolutely... Lee Eklob is here. You must know where that is. Lee, one of the most beautiful parts of all of the Pittsburgh area. Um, But for a half century, back in the 20th century, it became the main place, the main dumping ground for all the industrial waste, the slag from the steel mills in Pittsburgh. So that by the mid-1990s, the stream that ran through it was hardly running anymore. It was completely uh, contaminated, And at that particular time, there were three artists at Carnegie Mellon University who had a big vision uh, for that particular area of Pittsburgh. They they proposed that entire area, which had been viewed as a a wasteland. You know, it was called a brownfield. They wanted it to be redeveloped into a sustainable environment that they would call a green space in Pittsburgh, to be made beautiful again. And they knew... And all the city knew and the university knew that this sort of a project looked almost impossible, but their proposal was adopted both by the city and by the university. Now, they had three basic principles, and I think these are important for what I want to have to say to you. Number one is that in going into the project, um, it was not going to be a project where they restarted that whole area, but renewed it. And what they meant was they didn't want to destroy what was there and just rip out all the things that had happened through the slag and start all over. Instead, they wanted to go in and find out what kind of life had been able to uh, remain in that area in spite of the slag. So in the very first time they went in with their botanists, they found over 120 forms of plant life, and they decided that's going to be the foundation of the beginning. We're going to start with what is instead of destroying what is there. Principle number two. They were going to do it not from a distance, which if any of you, if you're in the academy very much, uh, you like to write papers about what people might do. They weren't going to do that. They were going to be involved in personal engagement, not from a distance but through personal engagement so that when they had participants in this and they had funding for it, uh, each one who participated had to say, I will be personally involved, which when you think about it, they were going to have to enter personally into that smelly, ugly, filthy industrial waste in order to do the part that they were assigned to do. And they knew that they were going to have to continue on, hands-on, until their part of the project uh, was completed. And then the third, third uh, principle was, it was not going to be cosmetic, not cosmetic, but transformational. So that their, their vision for the area was all-encompassing of the area. So they didn't have any interest in in just changing a few things or in in sort of uh, external beautification. They were after transformation so that they knew that this wouldn't be done overnight. It would require a long process. In other words, anybody who got involved was going to have to stick with it for the long haul. So these three art professors uh, put together a team from Carnegie Mellon University from all sorts of different disciplines. They had uh, studio artists, scientists, historians, landscape architects, botanists, urban planners, engineers. Well, over 20 years have gone by since they proposed the plan. I tell you, I'm sure there were countless snags. Can't you imagine how hard that was? But they saw it all the way through to completion. And now this is where your eyes, I I had a picture both of before and after the after. When I show it at church, people, ah. You wouldn't have done that anyway at church but uh, here, but but that's what they did. Now, as I've thought about that, that nine-mile-run Greenway project to me is a parable for what God is doing in my life and in yours, uh, in our churches and through us, and in our world. And you you can see how, how this kind of thing could preach if you wanted to turn it into a sermon that that how how God did not uh, remain distant but actually enters into this world how he calls together a variety of people with many different gifts to be involved but sends us to be involved personally in this world that that's something that once was incredibly beautiful genesis chapter 3 ch- chapter 2 has 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 been destroyed and polluted by all that began when sin entered this world god personally came in personally engages in our lives and in our world and calls us to be involved in the same way in this world as we saw him being involved when he came in the person of Jesus. So with all of this, there is a principle in the light of this, since that's the kind of mission that I think that our Father is in, a reclamation art ministry, taking what he loves that has become so devastated and polluted by sin, and making what is beautiful out of it again, what is right out of it again, the principle that I have is I I think that the central piece of God's work is done through local churches actually planted with real people and real communities. I believe from the depths of my heart that there is a reason why God has placed the churches represented here in this time in this world. Do you believe that? Because I, I feel like we get into this thing where we just complain about all the difficulties that are happening out here politically. To tell you the truth, I... I want to go back to California so I don't have to hear political ads anymore. Just, just a sideline. I, I can't believe it. Anyway, we don't have any of those because it doesn't matter. Everybody knows how California will vote. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, I, I've, I've got to get, get, uh, get back to this. There's a reason why he has placed this here, so that when we have these really thorny, difficult issues uh, of immigration, of the LGBTQ movement... Of all these things that are happening in our world, we often just complain about what is happening in our world. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, we have to say this is the time that God has raised us up and placed us in the places where we are uh, to give witness to the gospel and then to live out the implications of that gospel so that our world may know some of the beautifying power of our, of our Father. So there is a reason why he has placed us in the time that he has located us and in the places where he has put us. Uh, to be his ambassadors of reconciliation until a kingdom of justice and peace reigns. Which brings me to two, I'm just kind of talking you through today, the, the things that, uh, that that I keep putting in front of our church that I, that I hope will become the implicit theology of our church. Uh, two significant words that we uh, talk about a lot. And I'll have to give you some of the way that we are understanding them because both the way the world uses them and sometimes even the Bible has a broader uh, range of meaning than and the way we particularly apply them, but the two words are justice and reconciliation. Justice and reconciliation. Uh, the term justice, and tsareka in Hebrew, both in Hebrew and Greek, have to do with things being right. And so we think about justice, when justice reigns, everything being right. Yeah, the, the whole term, the notion is rooted in the very character of God, you know, uh, that God is just, that everything about God is right. And so because that's true, we believe that everything that God is, everything that God says, everything God asks us to do is right. Of course, we know also that ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, that there's nothing else in all of this world that is quite right including pull out the mirror and look in it. (laughs) So when God says, I'm going to make everything right, he has a lot of work to do. Uh, There's nothing quite right about our world. The ecology has been damaged. Uh, Politics have been damaged. Uh, Relationships have been damaged. Everything has been damaged. Nothing about our world is quite right except God. God is right. God is just. But God's mission is to make everything right. So I often will just say, Brothers and sisters, you know that there is nothing that's quite perfect in all of this world. You know this, don't you? Even getting to go to Pasadena, California, which just seems like almost a perfect place. We have earthquakes there. We have fires there. We don't get any rain there. When we do get rain, we're going to have mudslides there. I mean, it's about as perfect a place as I've ever been. And yet this side of heaven. There's nothing that is completely right. Not, not yet. And, and so just chalk it up. If you say, well, this church is all messed up that I'm a part of. When you go to another one, it's going to be messed up just in a different way. And yet he places us in places. And as he's making us right, uh, he uh, continues to do his word work of bringing about justice in this world. Someday it's all going to be done. Uh, I, I just keep this great, eschatological promises of ours always in front of us as a church revelation 21 first five verses revelation 22 the first five verses all they speak about what creation is going to be like when god is done with his reclamation art project Evil's going to be judged goodness prevail the divisions within and among people and nations it's going to end God is going to dwell with us, not in the restricted way. He dwells with us now, but in an unrestricted way, we will see him. Everything will be right, and all that is will reveal the glory of its maker. So that justice. Now, the other term is we have to think about how do we get from where we are here and what role missionally uh, do we have to get from where we are here to where it's going to be. And that's how we use the word reconciliation, which we understand as the process that leads to justice, I, I love the term reconciliation it 's this beautiful term of restored relationship we all We all can grasp it right you 've had a close relationship Have you 've ever had it where it was broken, and then if that relationship comes back together, is there anything in this world more beautiful than that than, than a restored relationship? I, I think of it as two related parts: reconciliation is taking what is broken in uh, God's creation and bringing it back together. Or if you want to use the other sort of an image related to that, it's taking what has become hostile in this world, in our marriages, in our uh, politics, and in so many places, taking what is hostile toward God and bringing about peace. And, And as you know, that kind of work meant that God would enter in, and the very foundation of God's reconciling work was God in Christ coming in to this slag-filled world. So that Colossians one nineteen and 20 becomes very, very central to us. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ Jesus, and then through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. So all things will be made right, whether things on earth or in heaven, but look what it took by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So I just I look at that and I think, God promises to take all these messes in our world and clean them up. He, he promises to take all the hostility in this world and to end it. And amazingly, and, and you know, I'm just talking to a group of pastors. In many ways, I just want to restore your enthusiasm for being in the place where God has called you to be. Amazingly, he takes groups of broken people who are cleansed, declared right before God through faith in Jesus. And then as he begins that work in us, he makes us his agents and ambassadors of reconciliation in this world. So 2 Corinthians five eighteen to 20 becomes so central to us. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Hallelujah. And then he gave to us. The ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. I'm telling you. When he places us in a community at a time. We go out. As though God is making his appeal through us. Because that's exactly what he's doing. See it's in the light of this. And I think at the end of the notes that you have there. You will have what we call our guiding statement. And as we state our mission. We begin it by saying. We participate in God's reconciling work. It's a, kind of a brief phrase, but you see that all this stuff I've been getting at, you see what I'm getting at when we say that. And we're going to do that until justice reigns. I, I keep thinking about those people who are involved in the Nine Mile Run reclamation project. We who belong to Jesus and find out that the Holy Spirit was willing to enter into this life and, and do his work within me, we go out into the slag of this world, not critically, but gratefully for the opportunity. And we go out saying, if there's hope for me, there's hope for anybody. We go out to bring his healing and his peace. With all that said, I am so convinced that almost everything we do at Lake Avenue Church that's worth doing is connected to reconciliation. Evangelism, which is the beginning and the heart of the peace. I think it's calling people to be reconciled to God, which is where it all starts. is what everybody needs through faith in Jesus. It's available to all. Uh, discipleship, we think about as having all of those things that are broken inside of us, either that we don't know or, or, or else we have gotten trapped by addictions or all these things that have happened and, and bringing it back together, being cleansed and healed and made whole again. It's about our growth in the Holy Spirit, be, being made mature in Christ. We see that as a reconciliation ministry. Our, our community outreach, which I'll be telling you about in just a moment, is about going out and engaging personally in God's reconciling work in our neighborhood. We say, God, you put us here. This is a beautiful neighborhood. You see it every January the 1st with the sun shining. Do you know that we have the greatest density of population in our neighborhood, just to the northwest of Lake Avenue Church, of any community outside of, of Skid Row in Los Angeles? We have the lowest economic standard uh, of all of LA County, except for uh, Skid Row, just right there, bordering on Lake Avenue Church. We hide it really well in Pasadena, so we sing about the little old lady from there, but but we we hide all that ugliness, but the slag is there and God has placed us there and we go out in the name of Jesus and say, um, there is hope and we will walk with you. And then global outreach for for me is simply that joy-filled recognition that when we place our faith in Jesus, we become a part of something bigger. In fact, I'm doing a series Right now, on, on that guiding statement, we're taking each part of it that I'm calling it uh, be a part of something bigger, namely that God is going to make all things right in all of this creation, and, and that we get to be his ambassadors of reconciliation to the utmost parts of the earth. So, so bottom line, our church, and I think your church, has been placed in this world to take part in our Father's mission. It's what, it's what gives energy and excitement to the lives of any true followers of Jesus who has experienced personally the justifying, reconciling work of God. And, and, and we're going to do that, finding ways and trying to figure out what's happening in our world and how we can bring the message of the gospel and what the needs are that need the, uh, the, the love and, and the justice of Christ in our community. We're going to do that until justice reigns. Um, I'll tell you, as hard as this is sometimes... Because with all of my talking to you here, those who, of us who come to know Christ within our church, we're out there doing all these big things in our neighborhood, and we come right in and, and, and a husband has left his wife, uh, a child has been caught uh, addicted to heroin. I mean I, I live where you live, right? And so I'm just saying that that when you get in, involved in this, it is we can't be very proud about it. We find it is a great privilege when we're able to go out and say, there is hope because we have found it in Christ. Now, how do we go about it? And here, got to make sure. You know, I did my doctoral work in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as I was doing that, walking through it, walking, looking at how Jesus engaged in this kind of work, I, I adopted three phrases that have, been, have proven to be helpful to us. I'm going to walk through those texts with you. What time am I supposed to be done uh, Greg? Okay, let's, let's yell at me. when. Oh, boy, I'm in great shape. Our church won't listen to me as long as you guys will. But Yeah, you want some of that, right? Okay, let's go. So we're going to walk through. I'm just going to take you through quickly. Each one of these could be preachable sections. Uh, but as I looked at how Jesus engaged in, in his incarnational work, uh, there are three phrases that occurred to me, and these three phrases are enter in, call to, and walk with. So enter in to respect-filled relationship. Um, I, I, the text that I use today, though I can use many, is Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Because it, followers of Jesus truly believe that every human being has the potential of of experiencing the transformational work of Jesus, the forgiveness of Christ and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, regardless of age and ethnicity and gender and all all of that. So So we feel like we have to enter in. The big question that many times the followers of Jesus had to answer, especially from the religious leaders, was this, why does your rabbi sit with tax collectors and sinners? And I find one of the biggest questions I have to ask when I'm sitting down with people who don't go to church is, why did your rabbi sit with tax collectors and sinners and the rest of you won't? You, you just accuse them and, 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 and blast at them. So when we look at this, uh, Jesus gave a very specific answer to that. He says, because I have specifically come, not for those who are healthy or think they are, but for the sick. And so I think we have to think about entering in in the very same kinds of ways. So Jesus would do this. Through the opening chapters of Mark, the first several, uh, the, uh, Jesus had been doing all these things that only God can do. Controlling the winds and the waves. Casting out demons, Mark chapter 5. Uh, forgiving sins, even raising the dead to life. But, but by the time you get to, to, to uh, Mark chapter 7, the only thing that the religious leaders noticed was that Jesus and his disciples didn't wash their hands enough. Ah, I just How could you that be the only thing that you notice? The, the, the rulers really seemed to think that the one thing that really mattered to God was staying away from being defiled by touching diseased things, demonized things, dead things. And especially damaged people, like Gentiles. And, and w- with that context in mind, I don't know if you have looked at this in Mark, but with, for some undisclosed reason, in Mark chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus heads directly into Gentile territory, and he remains there a long time. been a lot of discussion in New Testament circles about how long Jesus must have spent in his three years of ministry in Gentile territory, And he goes into what most of those people around him would have thought was the worst part of it, uh, into Tyre. And so when he goes there, everything that happens, I think I put a few of the phrases on there for you, everything from the perspective of his own culture was wrong. Uh, One, it was the wrong place for him to be. So verse 24, he left that place, which was with all of his Jewish people in Galilee, and went to the vicinity of Tyre, and he entered a house the tyrites were considered the worst enemies of israel the most polluted and the most to be avoided and they'd earned the reputation <laughs> but the bottom line is the one thing that the other religious leaders thought and even taught is that one of the things messiah would do would be expel and subdue the tyrites not go into their homes and not enter into a relationship with them but that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 24. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what I found in all of these difficult issues. Is the first place I have to learn to begin is to enter in and try to listen to life from their perspective. Enter into a respect-filled relationship instead of sort of wagging my finger and saying, you're wrong. Okay, number two. In that house, it was the wrong kind of person for Jesus to be speaking to. A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. Look, Mark, he doesn't give you many details, but the woman was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia. So again, uh, this woman was everything that these teachers that you read about in Mark chapter 7 would say that Jesus, if he's the Messiah, should avoid like the plague. She was a woman, and and women were thought, the real rabbis didn't associate, at least many of the rabbis said that. Two, she was a Gentile woman. Three, she was a Gentile, tyrite woman. Four, she was a Gentile, tyrite woman in a demonized house. I'm telling you, this woman was in every conceivable way the kind of person that good people would never have anything to do with it. But Jesus did not avoid her. And I'm just telling you, I don't think we should either. I think we could fill in our own descriptors, don't you think? Who it would be that we wouldn't just take time with respect to enter into a relationship to. Number three, there's so much more to this. The wrong kind of person receives the blessing of the king. Um, He enters and he tells a parable. A lot of people still have problems with the parable. It's worth struggling with. I, I, I wanted to do that, but I knew I wouldn't have time to do it, to tell you about it. The woman understands the parable. You know, up to this point, nobody had understood one of Jesus' parables. Now this Gentile, tirade woman in a demonized home understood a parable and gives an answer. And Jesus says, such an answer, such an answer. Uh, Go, woman, you have great faith. Uh, The demon has left your daughter. Now, so much I want to say about that, but I won't. By entering into relationship with the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus expanded his ministry beyond anything anyone, except God, had conceived of for a Messiah. Do you see it? His actions universalized the reach of the Savior in terms of geography, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of gender, in terms of religious background, in a way that was scandalous to his own society. And when you think about it, didn't this action open up the door for almost all of us who are here? Do you see what I mean? We, we would have been people that, that he shouldn't have entered into a relationship either. And he, he opened up the door for us to do such things as well. J- Jesus entered into a relationship with a person broken by sin from him and from God. Nobody had ever done this. And in the course of the relationship where they listen and interact with one another, beautiful things happened. I'm just telling you, I've experienced the same thing. Uh, liberation and rescue came into his house in ways that never could have happened. If he hadn't entered into a home entire, he entered into her life and, and miracles happen and they still do. But if we who have the ministry and message of the miraculous work of God do not go and enter into a grace filled, respect filled relationship, it won't happen. It's clear to me that unless Jesus had entered in across all those walls of division, there wouldn't have been any hope for this woman or her daughter. And I'll tell you, there wouldn't be much hope for any of us who are here today. He began by entering into relationship. And I'll tell you, that's where we start. Um, brothers, uh, we're going to have a breakout session where we're going to talk about some tough issues that I didn't want to talk about. But my former friend, Greg Strand, asked me to, to talk about some of these issues. So, so, I, so I will. But I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this again. We have found that in dealing with some of the issues that we have put at the forefront of what we're trying to do, like uh, immigration issues in Southern California, like all of the issues related to sexual practice, uh, that this this is where we have to begin. Uh, not holding people, even even dealing with the issues of uh, of abortion, uh, we we simply will not uh, uh, go and just yell at people. We're going to enter into. And try to listen to the stories that are there. So I think that Jesus gives us um, the model for doing this. And, and I find that even though uh, the issues are so complex, um, if we don't enter in, we won't even know what they are. Uh, we, we, we have to go into those places of brokenness and, and listen to people and find out what's there. And, and then in the midst of that, we have to count on the fact that we really believe that the spirit of God dwells within us. Do you believe that? And that in those times when you don't quite know what to say or do, the Spirit of God will lead you in ways consistent with the Scriptures and with the Gospel that we hold on to. But the fact is, reconciliation cannot be pursued without people facing one another, without us speaking to one another, without us understanding one another. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And I think I say that it's probably not the best, but the Church becomes flesh and dwells among the people that God has located us with. So we must enter in, find space for meaningful and respect-filled relationship. I'll tell you, it can be so many places. Um, A kitchen table, where when you find out that a husband's left his wife, you go grab him and say, nope, we're going to sit down, and you just stay there. (laughs) We're going to talk about this and be there. It, It may be a youth pastor's house where parents and their children, for the first time, have somebody to help them hear one another. It may be in a counseling room in your church where someone has fallen morally and is so ashamed, and yet just can't be written off, and you have to say, listen, uh, this is not where God wants to leave you. But the essential first step in the process is a willingness to enter into a relationship and and, and hear the other side of the story, even if we're not convinced by it. Just listening to the story doesn't mean that you buy the whole thing, but you listen uh, not with that person as an enemy, but as a, a, as a person for whom our Savior died. All right, two. After you've entered in, there's going to come a time in that relationship where you have to call people to follow Jesus as Lord. And that takes us to Mark chapter 8 and Jesus' call to discipleship. In, in that text, you know it well. You've probably preached it well, but I want you to think about it perhaps in a bit of a new way. Jesus said that if anyone, anyone will follow me, Who's in the anyone? Yeah, anyone is in the anyone. We as well. But then when you look back through the Gospels, you begin to see that the anyones include a tax collector, uh, a liberated demoniac in Matthew chapter 5, a Gentile pyrite woman, and yes, sometimes even a Capernaum synagogue leader. So there's hope for some people like us as well. But Jesus states without... Reservation uh, that anyone can follow after him but he also says that it's going to have these demands these three related demands for anyone who will find that reconciliation ministry until all things are made right in us and that is we must deny ourselves take up a cross and follow him deny self um, this, uh, Southern California this has to be the hardest one but maybe not just among us. It's this self-centered world where I want to go to church if it will let me keep doing the things I want to do. It's why Scientology has found a foothold in Southern California because they think that there aren't any real demands, and then they get in and find out that they are trapped. Uh, but but it's, it's, uh, if anyone will come after me, it, it means that uh, den- denying self will mean that sometimes myself simply wants to have more possessions, more prestige, It means I want to live out my sexuality this way rather than that way. And we have to get to a point like Jesus did to say, if you follow Jesus to find life, you have to let him be the Lord. And what he asks of me and what I think he might ask of you is not going to be easy. So deny self, take up a cross. Uh, If you read the episodes uh, with Jesus that followed this call to discipleship, taking up a cross isn't just facing hardship, but potential death. The reason, because Jesus is going to die, so we have to just say, wherever he leads you and whatever he asks you to do, uh, I'll be there. Uh, Greg, even as you were saying, uh, wherever, I mean, our calling is simply to follow him. And sometimes that following might take us to an unemployment line. But I'll tell you, the people who will be there with you are, are going to need, uh, need a witness to Jesus and somebody who will pray with them. I mean, there's just all sorts of reasons why when we follow Jesus, he takes us into places that we would never have chosen ourselves, and that's true for every human being. And then follow, make no mistake, that's just as demanding as the other two. That means our lives have to follow him in such a way that we're actually shaped by him and, and changed by him. Um, the world is going to say you have to live a certain way, to be happy, no, you follow him. Uh, And in our church, because we have such a huge um, group of people who've grown up up in extended family sorts of traditions, uh, Asia and Africa and and so forth, now I have to say if your family says, no, 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 you've got to keep studying to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, and you really sense that God is calling you uh, to carry the gospel into the Middle East. Follow him. I mean these are these are the, the this is the stuff of which our Christian faith is made up. I could say so much more, but I hope you'll see the life-changing implications of those three of those three demands. I, I face it every day trying to help our people rethink what it means to follow Jesus. They come up to me and say, Pastor, please pray that I'll get into Harvard or to Trinity or to Wheaton. Well oh, I can pray that, but I always have to say to them, I, I'll pray in that direction. But it might be that God wants you in a very different place from that. I'm going to pray you'll be open to whatever place he wants you to be. Or or a a hurting single mom came up. My heart went out to her. She said, Pastor, pray that I can meet a good man and get married who can kind of watch with me for my kids. And I I prayed with her for that. But but I said, you know, at, at this point I have to pray once again that the main desire of your life... Is to be in the kind of relationship he he wants you to be in, and you have to really trust that his way is better than anything I could ever ask him for. I'll ask him for that. We would have not often because we ask not. But at the end of the day, he's the one who makes the call. Are you ready for that? In our society, we find that the only way to uh, we're told that the only way to really flourish is, is to live life the way our passions direct us. And the Bible says no. The way to find life is to follow Jesus, and that's what we've got to call people to. And I've got to tell you this. Um, when we call people to follow Jesus as Lord, we don't get a whole lot of applause for that. When we enter into relationships with hurting people, uh, we get a lot of applause. And at Lake, we do that as people see how we're engaging in relationships with those who are getting out of prison in the reentry program and out of trying to help people to get out of homelessness and trying to help kids get off drugs. and out. So we get a lot of applause. But the moment we say, but now, follow Jesus as Lord, this is how he would have you to live. Nobody applauds us very much for that uh, sort of thing. Um, guideline number three is walk with. All right. It really. right, I'm going to go back to that second a little bit here because from there I walk on to the rich young ruler text in Mark chapter 10. Uh, I want you to know so you know that story, don't you? Verses 17 to 31, um, this, this man comes to Jesus and wants to know what he has to do to have eternal life. Jesus enters into a real relationship. It says he even looks at him with compassion. It, I, I sense, like almost everybody I, I meet, People don't want to come and say, Pastor, I want you to mess up my life. Today, I, I've been way too happy today. I want to figure out how to ruin it. People want to find out how to live. This man wanted to know how to live. He was a good man who wanted to live well, but something was keeping him weighed down, and that's the language that is used. In that, He had sought to keep all of God's laws, but as I, as I read the text, he knew something was missing. So with deep respect, he comes to Jesus and says, Good Master, and you know, Jesus immediately picks up on that. Uh, what do you mean by good, he says? There's no one good but God. And as I see that, he's pulling out the implications. Do you understand who I am? Do you understand that if I call you to do something, uh, you must take up a cross, deny yourself, and follow me? You see, what, you see what's getting out here? So he goes at the heart of the matter. Okay, I see what's keeping you from really living the life that you long to live for, young man. The solution is so clear, it's easy. It's your possessions that are possessing you. They're keeping you from God. Just all you have to do, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me, and you're going to find the life that you desire. See, this, this is Jesus' specific application of deny yourself to that young man. And the man's stated desire was he wanted to find life, but the center of his life, of his self, was his wealth and his position. And Jesus said that he had to get that idol out of his life, or he could never really live. And that's, isn't pastors, don't we have to do that? We have to do it ourselves, is where we identify those things that become idols, and we've got to call our people to do it. This, this young man wanted to hold on to what was at the core of his self, and and still find life, and said, no, Jesus says you find life in following me. So we have to do the same, and we have to have the boldness that Jesus had, not only to enter into a relationship with people that others won't enter into a relationship with. We need to listen to people as Jesus listened to people, but then we have to call people to follow the lordship of Jesus. Um, and this, become, this is where people often, like the rich young ruler, this is often where people turn away. But, but some don't. Uh, And so the third guideline is the local church is going to be planted like a family, and I I love Dr. Hollerman's. We've got to be a family to one another, that when people actually follow Jesus, it often is enormously costly. We have to say, you're not going to be alone. You're going to have a family of people to walk with you. Uh, Verses 28 to 31 are the most neglected parts of uh, the rich young ruler story. There is no one who is left house or brothers, sisters or mother or father or children or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time with persecutions. (laughs) Have you noticed that? I mean, would you want a hundredfold mothers, first of all? (laughs) Uh, What what is he uh, talking about here? Here, I want you to just try to picture what would have happened if this... rich young ruler, as we call him, had actually obeyed the call of Jesus, he would have been left destitute. His whole life had been patterned around his relationships. Can't you imagine? Oh, boy, if we're with him, he he can take us out to dinner. He can take us on vacation. So he had all those relationships. I imagine he had servants that also lived, but, but his own life was supported by, if he sold all his possessions to just follow Jesus wherever Jesus sent him, he would have been left destitute. How would he survive and, and the, how, how do we survive if, if we just say to Jesus, wherever you call us to go, whatever. Uh, w- w- first, let me find out what the retirement plan is and what what the salary is, and then maybe, if it's okay, then maybe I'll follow Jesus. We've gotten into that kind of safe Christianity, but but in this situation you see that when we truly follow the call of Jesus and call others to do so as well, we often put them in a place where they will be alone. So, um, as we deal with this issue of... of um, unborn life and and we have a, we have helped started a crisis pregnancy center near our church we don't go there and pick it and just tell people but we sit down with people and say if you will keep your child which we think you should because that child is so valuable um, but if you do you're not going to be alone we're, we're going to walk with you because so many of the young women if they keep the child they have no idea how they're going to live but, but if we're going to call them to follow Jesus, we're going to call them to come into a family. So I think I put it there for you here. I was going to put it up on the screen. If, if you can pull out your notes, you've probably already seen this before. Jesus gives two lists, uh, verses 29 and then verse 30. Uh, what do you leave? He said you're going to leave house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, and lands. But listen, if you follow Jesus, what do you gain? Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands. Uh, What's what's different in the second list? It's not a hard question. No father. You're already pastors. You're already seeing this, aren't you? There's only one father. So we all are going to be knit together under one, one father. But you're going to be brought into this big family that when God, when Jesus was done, read, read the parable of the seeds. It was going to be big. Yes, it's small now, like a little mustard seed. Sunday it's going to be big. It's going to reach to the whole world. You're going to be brought into a family where you don't ever have to walk alone. And brothers, this is why we have to see that we are planted in neighborhoods to be this kind of family to the people that we call to Jesus and who, when they follow Jesus, will sometimes be uh, excommunicated from their families. One of our pastors was studying to be a doctor, came to Jesus in an inner varsity group. His family disowned him because they wanted him to be a doctor, not a preacher. Now I'll, I'll tell you, just um, a year or two ago, he baptized his father on an Easter service in our church. It was unbelievable. It, it was just unbelievable. Um, I could hardly preach afterwards. Nobody wanted to listen to me uh, anymore. But but this is the thing that we have to be. Churches are planted to be. And and the notion of Dr. Kellerman's message today was so powerful. The notion, and Peter, you've talked to me about this many times, of a household of faith. The church is a household of, as a family. That when people enter into, we, we are knit together because we have one Father, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and then as a family, so that when people come to faith in Jesus, and and they're homeless, and they come into our church because we don't want to have just ministry to them there, but we invite them in, then we have a responsibility. I can't leave my brother or sister homeless. It's just really hard, and it's really uh, costly, and some people, especially when you go into a 120-year-old church, won't come with you. But many, many others, when we take up this part in the mission of God, they will, um, they will find vitality in their walk with God again. Okay, um, I'm starting to draw near the end. I, I kind of learned how to go about this uh, by going and visiting one of our missionaries in Thailand. Um, because I really think we as pastors just have to think the way that missionaries think, because that's what we are. We're engaged in God's mission to bring the gospel into this world where God has put us. So I was visiting. The, the names of the missionaries are Randy and Edie Nelson. They're amazing people. Uh, they went to, to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo University. Edie, uh, his wife, had been a, a third generation missionary. Uh, Randy fell in love with her, but he wasn't even a Christian. And so uh, it's not a bad reason. He started going to InterVarsity Group, and eventually he became a Christian. But she said, I'm not going to – he wanted to marry her. "Uh, I'm not going to marry you uh, unless you become a missionary with me. He says, okay, I'll be a missionary. (laughs) But no mission agency would take him uh, because he, you a fairly new believer except one. I won't tell you which one it was. So they – so they went and met with the mission agency, and, and, and my, my joke about Randy is he was too new a believer to have learned in the church what God can't do. Uh, we're pretty good at teaching that, what God can't do. He thought, God who made the world, he can do anything. So he went into the mission agency, and he said, we're, we're going to go together, and, uh, and they said, we have two options for you, two opportunities, and, but one of them's too hard. It's a it's a it's a, it's it's a group of people that are a nomadic people group. Uh, nobody can even find them, and if they find them, they're, they're, nobody wants them. Around. So you don't want to go there. We need to send you as a newer believer into this other one. And Randy said, "What do you mean? God can do anything, and He'll take the person who knows the least like me, and He'll send them to that, that area." 14 years later, not only did he find the people, but all of them had become believers. They were trained, and they were sending out missionaries to other people group. So it's a, you know, this is not your, your run of the mill follower of Jesus. Well, it should be the way all of us are, but I saw the real thing. I'll just say that. So then when his work there was done, it seems crazy. He chose to go into a world-class city, Bangkok, Thailand, and then on, went on to Pat, uh, Pattaya, which is the center of the traffic industry, kind of in that part of, uh, of, Asia, of of Asia. And when I got there, I preached at the most amazing church that I've ever been to. It's called True Friends Community made up all of people who have been rescued out of the, the bars and the, tra- and, and, the, and the trafficking industry. And I said, how did you do this? He said, well, we get into a place, and we just walk around the city, and we say, what's wrong here? And, and we find out everything is wrong. What's really wrong here? And then they saw that the bus that brought the kids, 12- and 13-year-old kids down to get into the trafficking uh, uh, industry, were being kids being sent there because their parents were out of money, being sent there because they couldn't even survive, and, and, and through the sex industry that we're going to try to provide survival funds for their families. And, and Randy said, that's not right. So, so he's, he, he took out the Weston Hotel, the most expensive place in all the city, and he invited kids from all over the city to come in so he could celebrate their lives and all the churches, they said, you can't do that. It'll be shameful. And, and I said, you didn't even tell us. He said, I was afraid to tell you lest we lost our support. But uh, so they went and they had that there. They said no one would come. First night, 76 people came. Second night, it was doubled that. Almost all of them gave their lives to Christ, and almost all of them are still in the True Friends Community uh, Church. Uh, now, it has grown to the point where they have even a, a rescue center right where the where they uh, buses leave the kids because they know those kids still need work so you enter in and find out what the real needs are and then you bring the gospel to bear upon those areas uh, of life and i'll tell you i do the same thing now in my community and uh, and i i want to try to share that with you because we, we all live in different kinds of communities but i'm telling you every community we're in rural suburban or urban it is affected by the sins of this world. And the gospel is great enough to make a difference in those sins, in, in, uh, in that place where slag has come into our communities and into our neighborhoods. I, I want to tell you how we go about it, and then, then I'll, I'll, I'll end. I just sat down, put my feet up on a table. This is just for you. I've never shared this even with our own church, but this is kind of how we go about it. Um, number one, I think you have to be clear about what I call your practical ecclesiology. I love Dr. George's talk yesterday. We need to know what the church is. We need to do what the Bible says the church does. I find that our people will do, followers of Jesus will do the challenging things if they really believe this isn't just the pastor's hobby horse. And this isn't just a technique to write a book or to make the church bigger. This is really what the demand of the gospel is. So proclaim that. If you see it's consistent, make that understanding of what the church should be and should do where it's located central to your decision-making. Make sure that your spiritual leadership understands, oh, the church is here for a reason. Uh, It will energize your spiritual leaders if they don't just have to think about the programs of the church but are really thinking about uh, how to bring the gospel to this city that most of your people will really love their city or their neighborhood, or their town. Number two, I found it so helpful not only to be really anchored in trying to make sure that the decisions I make are consistent with what the church is and what we should be doing, but to also stay current with what's happening in our, in our community, uh, finding out what the real local needs are. So um, because Lake Avenue has been there 120 years and the property was given by the first mayor of the city, uh, I do have access to get in. I meet with our mayor and our police chief and our fire chief and our, our head of our public schools, and I just say, what, how can we help? We have these church-state issues, I know, but we have people, uh, and, and we'll come alongside. And we have found out, all. so, so I, I try to take them out to coffee or to lunch, try to encourage them, and then I just ask them what their main needs are that they see in our neighborhood. And the funny thing is, the more that we actually get involved in the lives and the families of our neighborhood, the more that I know more than they do about many of the issues. And and it's helpful, this back and forth that goes on uh, among us. Um, If if they know that you want to be a good, helpful partner, it is amazing what a difference that makes. I I feel like I'm in a long journey on that one. Uh, Three, I really think... Now, I know we're a bigger church, so we're able to do this, but to have, for us, a staff member or a key lay leader who might share this understanding of the church, if you share it with me, to give leadership for your involvement in the community is so important. It almost has to be a person. You have to really respect them because they'll be irritating to you. Uh, our pastor of community outreach, I say, you have the gift of irritation. You make me uncomfortable all the time. And she says, but you preach about this all the time. I'm just trying to make sure you live out what you say we should be doing. So she is always bringing into these things into my, into my life, very involved in the CCDA. And so if, if, if um, you'll have to really support that person because if, if they irritate you, they'll irritate everybody else too. But uh, make sure that they know that this is uh, very important for us, that our natural inclination is to kind of become ingrown and comfortable, right? And so I think to find, uh, if you're a smaller church, a lay person who has that real heart uh, for the needs of people and and a love for the neighborhood and and a real understanding that the gospel is greater than the needs that are here and that the Spirit of God is big enough to raise Jesus from the dead so there's hope for our community. So you need to have somebody to give leadership to it or else other things, internal things, will take over. Four, you can't do everything. So I'm telling you, you've got to identify priorities for what you get involved in. So this whole way that I said go out and find out what's wrong, everything is wrong. (laughs) And you'll have all sorts of people trying to, uh, to, to push you this way and that. But, but to take time with your eldership and pray, Lord, of all the things that you might have us to do in this neighborhood, what are the most important things? And uh, we have identified all the issues related to immigration and documentation, issues related to homelessness, a reentry. California ran out of money and uh, released all the prisoners who'd committed non-sexual, non-violent crimes, and they just flooded into our cities. And so the uh, police chief and the mayor said, you have people, will you do something about that? And so we've had quite a ministry in the prisons, and so now we try to often meet guys coming out of the prison, mostly guys, uh, because the only people who ever meet them, they get almost no money. The only people who ever meet them are their uh, drug dealers and their gang leaders. And there's not going to be much future in that. So now, we've really seen a lot of these guys come to know Jesus, to be baptized in the life of the church, uh, a lot of back, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. It's hard. It's joy. Uh, Five, uh, find like-minded partners in the community. You don't have to do it alone. So we've actually started some of the ministries. We, we had three houses that we still have, but have now it, it's taken over by, uh, related to the church uh, foundation, uh, to, to, to provide uh, help to get people out of the cycle of homelessness, families out of the cycle of homelessness. We've had a 91% success rate, which is just off the charts, as you might know, um, we, we have partners working even in some of the areas that aren't our highest priorities in, in trafficking, which is very real in Southern California, uh, in, a, in the abuse of women, which is very real in Southern California. So we find like-minded partners uh, that will come alongside and do the work together with you to the glory of God. Six, and I think this is consistent with what Dr. Chaw talked to us about in terms of how to actually practice these things. You've got to have the stories Tell the stories in the gathering of your church about what God is doing that, w- that will make your church come, come to life, that God is still alive and setting people free. So that uh, through the Advent season each week, I would have testimonies of people who had come out of prison and where they were finding that, of, of people who had come out of um, atheism and had uh, come to find, in, in miraculous ways, they, w- they were exciting. We've got to tell the stories and celebrate the work of the gospel that is still very much, very real in our world and in our community. And then I think we always have to take that time to assess and reassess those priorities. Our community changes, and the needs that we had one year, and we've gone down a path there, uh, may not be the the main needs that we have in the future. So somehow you have to have that hard work of turning what you used to prioritize, maybe to give that to a partner or to someone else to carry on while you launch in a different direction. I'll stop there, and we might even have time for a couple of questions. So, all all I have to say, brothers and sisters, I knew I'd get to talk to you about this. Uh, Can can you tell this? This sort of resonates in every part of my being. I I was on the Trinity campus last fall, and somebody said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "I "I think I'm just here to keep telling everybody that there's a reason." why God puts a local church that you are training to serve in the place at this, at this time that he has located us. Uh, he, he, it's, it's his work. Incarnationally, he, he plants communities of his people into broken communities filled with slag. So I, as I look at it, we gather in our main worship service so that uh, we can get our eyes on God again and realize he's great in us for, that, for, for anything that is happening in our world so that we can allow him to remind us of some of the slag in our own life and to confess it and to hear him say, um, if you confess your sins, I'm, I'm going to be faithful and I'll be who I am and I'll forgive you and cleanse you and I'll start, start with you again uh, so that you can go out with gratitude in my name uh, I'll just tell you, uh, there is no uh, brokenness that you will encounter that is greater than God's power to heal. There is no hostility that you will find in a relationship that is greater than, than the Spirit's ability to bring together and to make peace. God loves the world. He's made, he sent his one and only son not to condemn the world. I love John three seventeen but to rescue the world through him. So until that work of the kingdom of justice and peace reigning in this world, God gives us a privilege of having his work happen within us. And I think he sends us out into this world to be his ambassadors of reconciliation until justice reigns and his glory is seen. Amen.